Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, mental health is a plague that is killing more young people than COVID-19, and the lockdown is only making matters worse. Now, economists could easily say, that is a shame, but what's that got to do with me? Well, it is holding back the economy. If mental health wasn't an issue, the population would be more productive. But to fix the issue costs money. And just how far should the government get involved in fixing this particular problem in terms of financial support, but also perhaps in controlling the behaviours that might be contributing to the problem? Or is that taking things a bit too far? I'm Phil Dobby. I'll be talking to Steve Keen as usual, but also Divya Dami from Vancouver, all on the Debunking Economics podcast. Welcome along. So Divya Dami is an undergraduate student studying political science and economics at the University of British Columbia. She's got a passion for economics and political activism, and she wrote to us asking if we could do a podcast on the mental health crisis that's emerging as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, it's also Mental Health Awareness Month, so it seems timely. And Divya uh, wanted us to talk about what this tells us about economics does it even ever consider our mental well-being now you've got to be really careful when you send in requests like that because we could end up inviting you on the podcast which is exactly what we've done we've got uh, divya in vancouver we've got me just outside london in the uk and steve is somewhere in uh, southern thailand so so tell us first of all divya uh, you're an undergraduate student uh, so presumably now you're having to study from home And I imagine also this is a difficult time for lots of students because I know a lot have bar jobs as well, don't they? And jobs like that to try and help them make it through. So it must be pretty tough right now. Yes, it is definitely very tough right now for a lot of students uh, across the world. Classes are going online and we have to get our education through the computer. We don't have in-person learning anymore. It puts a lot of stress on students and a lot of students are worried about how well they're gonna do academically, their GPA. And a lot of universities have already announced putting the fall semester online. And from what I've heard, students are considering even just delaying their education, not continuing it in the fall semester. And like you mentioned, income, a lot of students uh, have had internships canceled Mm. for the summer. A lot of people are getting laid off. We don't have the proper experience to be competitive for either higher level jobs, or we don't have the years of work necessary to really compete with the current job market. So Steve, you worked in the education sector, obviously, for for a long time. I mean, this this is so different to, I had it easy. I was of that generation when everything was paid for. You're going to hate this, Divya, but I mean, the, the, the state paid for your education, uh, not only for the course, but also gave you a, a living allowance. In fact, I used to go to the, uh, to the, to the, to the student union where the beer was also subsidized because the, the government paid your student union membership and a chunk of the student union membership was paid for the, uh, for, for the, for the facilities at, at the student union, which is largely drinking alcohol. So we didn't, and, and then because we, because we didn't pay for anything, I don't think we had quite as much pressure on us in terms of the outcome at the end of university. You sort of went to university if you, if you were good enough. 
uh, you didn't necessarily do a vocational degree. It was just a stage in life. So none of that pressure existed. Is, do you think that's changed, Steve? Oh, yeah. I mean, just uh, we want to get into talking about working people and people covering mortgages and having families to cover as well and the stress this is causing them too uh, later on the, in the podcast. But, yeah, definitely we had it easy. I mean, I, 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 I laugh when I see baby boomers talk about how, you know, we had it tough. I mean, talk about the four bloody Yorkshiremen. Uh, when I went through university, uh, I mean, I got a scholarship to go to uni and uh, I never actually got any living allowance. They, I managed to get I bummed out of that by my father's uh, pay level and by the um, by the means testing that was involved. My father was only a middle class bank manager, so it wasn't uh, living a, a wealthy life. But nonetheless, I had no fees to pay for. And uh, when my father at one stage challenged me about my grades, uh, saying I had to get a better results to um uh, to get uh, you know a decent job afterwards, I was leading a student revolt at the time, so I spent more time leading demonstrations than I did in lectures. I remember replying to him and him walking away in disgust when I said it. I'm not here to get a job. I'm here to get an education. Now that was possible back in the days when you didn't have fees to pay, when you didn't have um, the vocational pressure students are under now because unemployment was so low. It was literally one and a half percent. Uh, when I went to university, that you basically thought you could get a job no matter what you did at the university. I happened yeah. to graduate in the middle of the 74, 75 downturn, and unemployment went from 1.5% to 4.5%. And I found myself competing against uh, really old guys like people in their 30s for jobs and losing out. So I've, I did finally suffer that stress of, um, am I going to get employed? But um, the mentality when I went through, and I think when you went through, by the yeah. sounds of it as well, uh, was... We're here to learn, and the university was a relaxing experience. Yeah. Look, I'm sure Divya doesn't want to hear a couple of uh, middle-aged blokes talking about the good old days. So so tell me, Divya, uh, you know, the, the angst that you think people are feeling, uh, students particularly, is that because of circumstances right now, because of the, of the virus, or is it something a bit more deep-rooted than that? It's definitely more deep-rooted in the student society. Even before the start of this pandemic, debt is going up dramatically. The cost of going to college now is much more expensive than how it was just a few years back. Um, there's a lot more competition there's uh, this pressure that we need to keep up with uh, the continued increase of competition and being able to uh, further improve our skills, especially now that we live in an economy that depends on more of a skilled labor. The more yeah. education you receive, the more competitive you can be in the job market. And with the start of this pandemic, it puts us more at that disadvantage um, where we can't, it makes it harder to really match up with those pressures. But a mainstream economist would say, well, this is what economics is all about, isn't it? You've got yourself to university so you, uh, so you become educated so you can get, uh, get better jobs. Um, this, is, this is the economy working. But for students, there's other things we have to worry about now. It's not just education. A lot of us have to worry about place of residency, income. We have to worry about being able to save money for our future. A lot of students actually don't really have a proper savings rate because we have to allocate our money towards our education, towards uh, other important basic needs, and we are put at that disadvantage because yeah. of that. Well, it's, it's how much of this, I mean, your favorite topic, Steve, is debt. And I'm wondering how much of the, you know, when we when we look at people getting into mm, debt, mm. 
I mean, it, that, that does, there, there is a, an emotional price to pay for that, isn't there? Anyone who's carrying a large amount of debt, obviously, is feeling it, particularly at times like this, where, you know, they might be worried about where the, the next dollar or the next quid is coming from. But now we're starting it early. We're telling students, hey, get used to debt. It, starts, it can start for you at 18 years old. And I think this, is, this to me, this is probably the main part of the mental health crisis we're seeing right now with the COVID, uh, over the pandemic, because people have been told they've got to go into lockdown uh, when their only way to finance their commitments, their financial commitments, is through their income. And particularly in America, I mean, with the over, th- getting close to 40 million people now who've lost their jobs, uh, they're caught in the impossible situation of having to stay at home to avoid the virus versus having to go to work to be able to pay for the rent to stay in the home in the first place. And I think that's what I see as the major mental health crisis coming out of this. You know, I, I feel for students. Uh, and I understand the situation of the stress they're under before the virus hit, and of course it's worse now. But to me, the major dilemma is actually the their parents, really, um, who find themselves uh, suddenly the the cash flow they're relying upon to cover their commitments is gone, and they're faced: do I do I risk my life um, to go and to go and work, or do I save my life and be unable to buy food for myself and my kids? Uh, that must be causing enormous anguish, and I'd like to see some data on it. On a, a broader question, I mean, economics generally assumes that we all behave like rational consumers, and yet, you know, the, the, people do have mental health issues. That means we're not behaving rationally. So fun, fundamentally, um, the, the, the whole process is flawed by something which is now growing to be quite significant. <laughs> well. I've got to give my favourite, pardon me, jumping in here, but I've got to give my favourite instance of the madness of this rationality of economics uh, because uh, what economists try to do, is, as you'd know, is, is profile people's behaviour by talking about them having uh, indifference curves, which show their, uh, a bit like an isobar on a weather map showing points of equal pressure. The idea of an indifference curve is saying points of equal satisfaction from different combinations of different goods. And we all try to maximise our utility. And, uh, and, that, and that's how they try to explain the behaviour. But when they actually apply the theory, they find enormous holes in it. And I was waiting for this to happen. I think sometime, it would have been late the late 1990s, because I was still with my first wife at the time, uh, an article came out. I was expecting to see it turn up. An article talking about how to explain why people don't actually behave as rational utility maximises. An economist in the Eastern Economic Journal hypothesised that irrationality is consumed as a good. Right. And to add on to that, actually, what I think is very interesting is if it is the case that people want to maximize their utility, the issue there is that a lot of people don't have access to those activities to do so. People, If people don't have access to improve their well-being, they incur a cost. And when I mean by resources, I can mean treatment, uh, getting proper help, therapy, uh, getting the proper resources you need to improve your well-being. If you have a mental illness, you're more prone to not being employed. Even if you are employed, there is a, a high chance you won't be able to perform at your potential. And with this lack of resources, you're unable to maximize your utility. You incur a cost. And it's not just a cost for the individual. It actually makes a cost to the economy. Um, from what I read in the UN guidelines, it costs the global economy one trillion per year 
just on anxiety and depression disorders, mm. one trillion. And mm. during and after this pandemic, hands down, it's going to go up. It's going to cost the global economy even more. And what, what else is very interesting is if we were to treat all um, mental illnesses, anxiety, depression, GDP would boost by 4%. It would improve potential output. It would produce billions into the economy. But do we know how to fix it? So so in the UK, I mean, mental health is certainly a, a, a poor cousin to physical health. So it, it accounts for about 10% of total spending on health by the NHS. So 90% is physical things that we can deal with. Like we know, a, you know, a broken leg, we can cope with mental health, it's more difficult. And, I, and, you know, I mentioned the point before about how much of it is circumstantial. So to fix the problem, do you need to change the circumstances? And that could mean just changing the way the whole, the, the whole, the whole economy operates. Not how the whole economy operates, but I think the main issue is that there, what neoclassical economics doesn't really take into consideration are the social values and the social norms, and what goes into that as well is stigma. There's still a lot of stigma that exists, and even if resources are available, let's say we do have the resources for people to go to get that treatment, there is that stigma that lingers around people with mental illness saying that, you know, there's something wrong with them or they have a problem. And it's something that we don't really talk about. Mm. It's something we don't really discuss. Mm. And that's something that we do need to address. Typically in a country, one in five people have a mental illness. And in rich countries, illnesses, mental illness accounts for half of all illnesses up to the age of 45. So it's, it's still a very huge problem it's something that we just we just don't really talk about so here's, a, here's a question for both of you maybe you can have a stab at it first divya that, that you mentioned uh, you talked about utility and i think i talked about uh, productivity but both awful terms to use when we're talking about human beings uh, we're, t- we're talking about human beings like machines aren't we when we start talking like that and uh, and i wonder whether in fact you know what we're all striving for well we know what we're all st- striving for is to get closer to self-actualization so i've i'm, I'm in a circumstance now where I've got the most unstable income they've ever had in my life. But I'm mentally challenged just about every day, and that helps offset that because I feel like I'm using my brain a lot more these days than I was when I had a a more secure job. So even though I've got a more unstable lifestyle, I'm actually more stable mentally because I feel like I'm closer to that self-actualization. I think at at your stage in in life, Divi, I mean, I'm sure that's what you want, but your needs, you know, we're back to the old Maslow hierarchy of needs. You've got to look after those basic things first. I've got the luxury that I can climb a bit higher up the pyramid. I agree with you on that. Um, there's a lot of factors that go into mental health. It's not just employment or how much money you're making. It's, it's actually pretty obvious that even those who make the highest earnings, it doesn't necessarily mean they're happy or it doesn't necessarily mean they're mentally better off. Um, uh, When I was talking about employment, it is one of the factors, though, into mental health, especially with the pandemic now with unemployment surging 10% in the the United States. It definitely takes a role into the mental health yeah, crisis. Yeah, it's the unknown, isn't it? Fear of the unknown. Well, Steve, I mean, Adam Smith, I mean, of course, you know, was, uh, okay, the father of economics, apparently. Uh, but he was also a philosopher, wasn't he? Actually, rather than an economist, he was more of a philosopher. He wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments, uh, his first book, in which he argued that we 
all enjoy the respect and admiration of others rather than acquiring wealth and greatness. That's what he reckons. The problem is, of course, we seem to uh, think now if we acquire wealth and greatness, then we get the respect and admiration of others. But he was right on that, wasn't he? But we seem to have lost that thinking somewhere along the line. Well, I want to actually go further back than Adam Smith, and we actually talked about this with Blair Fix uh, last on the last podcast. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, which is the idea of what's called the Dunbar number, and this is uh, you know in terms of because we we take society for granted as our point of reference of whether we're mentally healthy or not. We never ask whether society itself is healthy, and if you look at the type of species we are, we evolved as a uh, as, as a uh, collective cooperative species with some competition internally as well, of course, as we're not bonobos, um, but c- competitive slow cooperative where you got your self-esteem from your interaction with others in a tribe, which uh, mm. in, in terms of not, not, sort of the tribe, not the tribe itself, but the community uh, within the tribe you were part of, maxed out at about 150 people, and there are about 7,000 people at the, the sort of maximum in the actual overall tribal group, which you'd meet through uh, the you know summer and winter festivals and stuff like that, and I vividly remember reading Nelson Mandela's autobiography, uh, the Long Road, Long March to Freedom, because he was born into a into the Zosa tribe in South Africa and lived in a in a village for most of his his early life, of course. And I remember him saying at one stage, as he was growing up, he could not imagine anything better than being a member of the Zosa tribe. And what I get out of that was a real sense of this, the form of community that you. Uh, experience when you live in a, in a the actual way we actually evolved as a species was tribal villages and and and, and that yeah. gives people in those societies a much higher level of mental health than we expect in a capitalist society or socialist anything any large aggregative society right from the days of agriculture when we spend most of our time lives stressed up by where do we fit into a hierarchy which is you know, Blair's point. Yeah, and I think or, that, that or, is, or, that is or, or it's also an element of the rat race as well, isn't it? The fact that you know yeah. we are <laughs> and not just the hierarchy, but we're we're racing to get ahead or racing to su- survive. And of course, the whole idea of the rat race is that you've got no control of your destiny. You know, you're you're like a mouse in you've the, got to be on the treadmill. Pursuit of, a, of a bit of a yeah, you, and you, you yeah. you're doing it for a bit of cheese. Uh, you fight, might fight against that when you're a bit older, but as we were saying just before, when you're younger, you've got you've got less choice in that. Still, we're in better times than we were in Dickensian times, for example, aren't we? Yeah, and I think this is, again, in terms of how, we, how the economic society situation uh, affects us. Uh, I saw some comments recently saying that it looks like for most of the, certainly for the last 5,000 years, most people spent most of their lives in a state of post-traumatic stress uh, because of yeah. the level of conflict that was a common part of human society. We have uh, buried that conflict to some extent within some of our societies in the last two centuries. But, uh, you know, the, the, there's an enormous level of stress, which is a, a product of the competitive and militaristic societies we're part of. And it would put it all back on the individual, which, of course, neoclassical economics does, and, and a lot of our thinking about mental health does as well, leaves out the extent to which society generates that stress by its competitive and hierarchical nature. So, Divya, I wonder whether GDP, getting back to, you know, the role that economics has in this, I mean, we're all slaves to GDP, and I wonder whether that's part of the issue as well. If we look at New Zealand, they've supposedly ditched that as the key measure, at least for how the government is performing, and they're, you know, putting more of a focus on the, the happiness index. Now, the, uh, the the prime minister there was, was criticised because it was seen as being, a, you know, a bit too woolly in thinking. Uh, but that has to be the main outcome, surely, for a government, not how wealthy people are, but how happy people are. Precisely, because 
when a person is more happy, it does have an, an influence on the economy. If a person is happy, they are actually going to consume more as well. They're going to be more productive. They're going to、uh, perform better in their job. What's also very interesting is that if we were to treat even just over half of mental illnesses, employment would go up by 4%. That, and with that increase in employment, It's like I mentioned before, it would put billions into national. Because、right. consumption would go up, because, we'd be, because there'd be more people producing and more, more people consuming, presumably. But then, this is the, the, the beauty of that happiness index is that, I mean, we tend to look at income disparity. If we were to look at, and in that, we assume that those people who are on a higher income、uh, are the happier people, but that's not necessarily the case, and you can be poor and happy. But、uh, if, we, if we looked at the happiness index and we were looking at the disparity in happiness, then that would bring to the fore mental health issues, wouldn't it? We'd, we'd have more focus on it. Right. It's not the focus primarily on income is not going to be enough to address the mental health crisis. We need to look at other factors. And that's what makes economics very, very complex. It's not a direct causality where we can look at、uh, productivity associated to price or、uh, looking at it at an income perspective, looking at it at just like a sole perspective.、Um, Economics perspective, we need to take into consideration those social relations rather than those commercial relations. So, the happiness index, by the way, is a joint project that involves、uh, John Helliwell, who's、uh, from the School of Economics at your university, the University of British Columbia. One observation they've made is addiction contributing to unhappiness. And addiction, of course, is something that marketers. Strive for, you know, it's,、uh, it's economics 101, tobacco, food, gambling, internet, shopping, all legal and all addictive and all contributing to unhappiness. So there's, there's the economy playing against our happiness right from the right. very beginning. At its core. Even for me, I've no, I know people that are going through something like that. Students my age, whether we're talking about, like you said, the internet, drugs, alcohol,、yeah. it's more common than people think these, this addiction. And it's, it's very upsetting because I see it ruin lives. I see it ruin students' lives and they lose sight of their potential. They lose sight of, Their basic needs, their mental well being. And while this is all going on, capitalists are taking advantage of that. They're taking advantage by selling more of those drugs,、uh, alcohol, being more prominent on the internet instead of addressing the issue of what's going on. And the internet definitely is making it worse. Look, I've got young kids, and、uh, there, was a, there was a TV presenter who smashed their kids, her kids'、uh, iPads, and I can completely understand why she did that because getting, getting them off online is a, is a real problem. And the, again, the happiness index with、uh, this guy from your university, they've found a strong correlation between happiness and sleep and internet use. The more sleep, the happier you are, the more time onli- online, the,、uh, the, the unhappier they are. And they, they argue this could explain why there's been a marked decline in adolescent well being since 2011. But for university students, it's pretty hard to get. That proper amount of sleep with the amount of work that we, we have to do. In undergrad, we, just, we don't just think about studying now. We have to think about volunteer experience. We have to think about work experience. 
a lot of us are working part-time or full-time just so that we can pay for rent, we can pay for food. There's a lot of other factors involved mm. that we need to take into consideration. So they raises the question, doesn't it, about how the state gets involved in all of this. If you've got an issue uh, uh, that people are struggling with, like we've seen with the with the virus, so we ha- we've had lockdowns. If we've got mental health issues and it can be fixed, uh, then maybe we need to start implementing uh, controls uh, in the you know maybe we need to say you can only have so many hours of screen time i'm sort of half joking um but you know if if people aren't controlling their behavior themselves and it's leading to depression and then that's uh, holding back the economy maybe, maybe there needs to be a, some sort of approach that says for example look uh, you need to get six out there will be a, t- a penalty if you don't get six hours of sleep every day what do you reckon steve well i mean that, that's a very big that's a very big brother vision there, mate. But what, I, what, I'm, entirely serious. what, what, what I'm focusing on actually... Uh, the lockdown was a pretty big brother vision. Yeah, but but, but, this, but you look at where it's actually been successful and what what is the effect of being in a country where the lockdown has worked? And I'm living in one right now, which is Thailand. And I've got to tell you, my mental health is a damn sight better than most people in the UK or America right now. Because of fear. Because of fear. And like, I've just, we've just been out shopping at the... Uh, at the uh, local um, uh, retail centre, and you you no longer feel afraid when somebody walks towards you, and that's because Statey had a much more effective lockdown uh, than any than the Europe had at all. So in that sense, by having a strong state which effectively enforced a set of rules that worked well against the biological threat of the virus, people's mental health is far better now in in these strongly state-controlled societies than it is one where you're some more legitimate libertarian like America where people are frankly scared shitless. Uh, they're scared shitless of not working. They're scared shitless of working. They're scared shitless of staying at home. They're scared shitless of going out of home. Um, it, so it is, it, there is a role for the state in achieving uh, mental well-being when it effectively addresses a, a systemic mm. and existential threat like the virus. And I think going forward, that's going to be the main issue. Well, that's sounding a bit big, brother. It's also sounding a bit communist, if you if you ask me. I mean, if we want to have a, a capitalist system uh, for virus that, for example, uh, may be with us forever, uh, how do we adapt to it? And, uh, and adapt to it as well in a way that's going to look after our mental health so we're more productive. Uh, in, in my case, it's setting up the environment that makes us feel less stressed. And that may well mean a lot of compulsory uh, reductions in consumption, uh, uh, limitations on movement, et cetera, et cetera, which if they work in terms of making our societies more sustainable, will actually make us less stressed. So it's not just a straightforward case of saying the state should be out of the way, let me be a libertarian uh, individual, utility uh, maximising globule of, of pleasure and pain, to quote Veblen. Uh, it's, it's saying we have an existential threat, uh, which we are our own existential threat. And a state which actually is capable of realising that and doing something to reduce the dangers from that threat may be a less stressful place to live in than one which says, go out and do your, your Adam Smith and your John Stuart Mill thing. Right, but you, but it's the point is that people need money, isn't it? So uh, I, I, the government either needs to pay that money or people need to have the ability to, to earn that money. I mean, uh, it seems like this is the root of it. Apart from people not getting enough sleep and spending too much time playing computer games, it looks like that is the root of the issue right now um, and that's the sort of thing that students and large tracts of the population I think Divya are struggling with at the moment but what I think is that what 
has made it a little bit better for me is what Canada has done about the pandemic. Uh, Canada has implemented many benefits, many programs to help people that are struggling like me. They have programs specifically for rent. They have programs specifically for people that are working, specifically for people that got laid off, Indigenous people, even students. Canada has implemented all these programs, all these benefits, and they even canceled evictions from happening, which means that if you can't pay for your rent because of the pandemic, you can't be evicted. You can't be kicked out. And I can't even emphasize how much of a relief that is. So that is the good news, isn't it? At least you're at least you're living on the right side of the border. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> we'll leave it there for now. Divya, uh, appreciate you coming on and uh, and and uh, giving us a, a a topic which you know is it, it, it is very important and uh, probably not talked about enough and uh, related to the economy and the role of government, uh, an important one to have. Thanks for your time today. Thank you so much for Welcome. having me. And actually, next time we're going we are going to talk about the United States. Is it all it's cracked up to be? The good and the bad points of the US economy. Uh, Even Donald Trump, is he all bad? Uh, We're going to look at that next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Key. I'm Phil Dobby. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.